traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen and Jenny from Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The strain of the taxes was obviously distressing, but refusing to pay them was madness, especially without a backup plan. Then again, the current high priest, Onias II, wasn't known for his piercing insight. And sure enough, before you could say king of Sejin B, Ptolemy's envoy came up to Jerusalem to get the lay of the land. Coel Syria was Ptolemaic, at least for the previous 20 years, and Jerusalem was really little more than a troublesome city in Syria, which is a view that Ptolemy's envoy, one Athenian, took pains to reinforce. I mean, do you want Ptolemaic soldiers garrisoned in the city, and maybe some lovely Hellenistic statues for the temple? because Alexandria has plenty of both to spare. In the end, it was Onias' nephew, Joseph, the son of Tobias, who stepped in to manage the crisis. He told the Egyptian envoy Athenian that his uncle Onias was senile, cheap, and full of himself, but that shouldn't stop wise and good-hearted men from reaching an understanding. He also told his fellow Jews, who were pretty spun up, that he'd be happy to head down to Egypt and negotiate a deal, if they'd be cool with paying for the trip, plus some reasonable daily expenses. Uncle Onias gave his blessing, and Joseph raised enough local silver to purchase garments and cups and beasts of burden to make the journey in style. The timing wasn't exactly random. According to the later Jewish-Roman historian Josephus, this was the time when all the principal men and rulers went up out of the cities of Syria and Phoenicia to bid for their taxes. For every year, the king sold them to the greatest men of power in every city. So we're talking about tax farming where you tell the king, I'll commit to pay you X amount, and you get to keep anything above and beyond. 
So Joseph joined the milling throng of non-productive farmers looking to bend the pharaoh's ear. While the 1% he was mixing in with weren't too impressed with his garments and cups and beasts of burden, Joseph did have a couple advantages. Namely, the rapport he'd established with the envoy Athenian and some critical intel that Ptolemy wasn't in Alexandria at all, but instead at ancient Memphis. Upon arriving there, Joseph came across the king and queen riding in their chariot, along with, you guessed it, the envoy Athenion. I mean, really, what are the odds? Anyway, once Athenion confirmed his bona fides, Joseph managed to delight the king with his good humor and pleasantry. That Ptolemy began already, as though he had had long experience of him, to have a still greater affection for him. The pharaoh invited Joseph over for dinner, which is always nice. But the coup de grace came a few days later, because when the king was come to Alexandria, the principal men of Syria saw Joseph sitting with the king, and were much offended at it. But Joseph wasn't there to make friends, other than with King Ptolemy, so he was fine with letting the haters keep on hating. In the end, Joseph was able to outbid his rivals and win the contract to collect taxes for the territories of Coel Syria, Phoenicia, Judea, and Samaria. In other words, pretty much everything south of a line running east from the port of Aradus to the future city of Homs, or Emesa. Ptolemy did ask him to surrender hostages as a kind of security deposit, but since Joseph and his wife didn't have any kids yet, the pharaoh let it slide. Instead, he went with a different type of security, loaning Joseph 2,000 soldiers to as Josephus puts it, for such as were refractory in the cities to pay. Well, things got refractory pretty quick. Ashkelon refused to pay, so Joseph seized 20 of the city's richest men, put them to the sword, and sent all their money to Ptolemy. Josephus reports that on receiving the news and the money, Ptolemy admired the prudent conduct of the man and commended him for what he had done, and gave him leave to do as he pleased, which Joseph soon did again at Scythopolis. With these two examples under his belt, and the pharaoh's unconditional backing, the remaining cities opened their gates to Joseph and paid their taxes. Josephus reports that by this means, Joseph gathered great wealth together, and by keeping Ptolemy's goodwill through a constant string of gifts and flattery, Joseph retained the position of tax farmer for the following 22 years. Now, at this point, I need to flag a fairly glaring inconsistency. Josephus names the Ptolemy in question as Ptolemy V, the pharaoh who wed Antiochus the Great's daughter Cleopatra, and also happens to be responsible for the Rosetta Stone. The problem is that the Ptolemies only controlled Coel Syria until around 200 BC, and Ptolemy V didn't marry Cleopatra Syra until much later. 
So if Joseph was a Ptolemaic tax farmer for 22 years, it'd have to be before this time. Scholars suggest that to the extent the story recounts actual events, the Ptolemy in question was probably either Ptolemy III or Ptolemy IV, who succeeded him in 221 BC. Apart from the items I'll relate in a moment, Ptolemy IV was mainly known for building a massive pleasure galley called a Tesserocontorus. Supposedly 128 meters long and requiring 4,000 oarsmen, it may have been the largest human-powered vessel ever built. Anyway, back to our story. A few years into Joseph's new job, the region saw major conflict. In 217 BC, the Seleucid king Antiochus III marched his army south into Coelsyria. There's no mention of him attacking Jerusalem, and he apparently met with little resistance until he'd reached the city of Rapha, or Raphia, near the traditional borders of Egypt. Ptolemy IV's army was camped nearby, and after a failed attempt by Antiochus to assassinate him, the battle commenced in earnest. This was one of those ginormous, full-on Hellenistic era battles, with around 70,000 troops on each side, African elephants facing off against Indian elephants, the whole nine yards. Both kings led their armies in person, and Ptolemy was joined by his sister wife Arsinoe III, who may have commanded a phalanx of troops and inspired them, or bribed them, to fight harder at a critical moment. Either way, when the screams died down, the blood stopped flowing, and the dust finally settled, Coel Syria remained Ptolemaic, which meant that Joseph was able to keep right on collecting taxes. During his decades living and working in Jerusalem, Joseph had seven sons with his wife and another son by his own niece, which we're just going to ride on by, named Hyrcanus. And because he proved himself to be sharp and sagacious and had the best disposition to virtue, Hyrcanus became Joseph's favorite, to the point where he loved him as if he were his only genuine son. Unsurprisingly, this did not make Hyrcanus at all popular with his seven elder brothers. When a new prince was born to Ptolemy IV, Joseph was summoned to Alexandria to attend a birthday festival. But since he was getting old, he decided to send one of his sons instead. His seven sons were all of a mind that he should send young Hyrcanus. Joseph okayed the plan, made a few financial arrangements, and sent Hyrcanus off to Egypt. And the moment he left, Josephus reports that his brethren wrote to all the king's friends that they should destroy him. Down in Alexandria, things got uncomfortable pretty quick, with financial shenanigans, stewards getting jailed, and Hyrcanus getting called before the queen to explain himself. But just like his father, Hyrcanus managed to charm the Ptolemies, and also gave them thoughtful and well-received gifts. And for good measure, he also bribed the Ptolemaic nobles his brothers had tried to intrigue with. 
And since gifts to the powerful are often investments, Hyrcanus ended up getting even more valuable gifts from the Ptolemies in return. Josephus relates that when his brethren heard that Hyrcanus had received such favors from the king and was returning home with great honor, they went out to meet him and to destroy him. Which is pretty single-minded, but you've got to respect their focus. We're not talking like rival armies or anything, more likely just a few dozen friends and maybe a few hired ruffians. Facing down his brother's ambush, Hyrcanus slew many others of those that were with them, and also two of his brethren themselves. But the rest of them escaped to Jerusalem to their father. As it happened, his father Joseph was a bit ticked off that Hyrcanus had overspent on his trip, so he basically sided with the brothers. Which meant that Hyrcanus was effectively estranged from his family and no longer welcome in Jerusalem. Josephus notes that Hyrcanus, being afraid for himself, retired beyond the River Jordan. It's unknown where he made his new home, but it's reasonably likely that it was in the nearby city of Rabath Ammon, modern Ammon, Jordan, renamed by the Ptolemies as Philadelphia. Because it was a major Ptolemaic center, Hyrcanus was still in favor with the Ptolemies, and, you know, what better place to hide from your homicidal brothers than the city of brotherly love? When his father Joseph died soon after, Hyrcanus was apparently given his role, and, according to Josephus, continued obliging the barbarians to pay their taxes. It's not clear whether Josephus means barbarians as in non-Greeks, but either way, he's referring to local Syrians. Josephus reports that Hyrcanus retained the farm of the taxes of Syria and Phoenicia and Samaria 22 years, just like his father. Which, if it's anywhere near true, implies some fancy maneuvering. Because a few years into Hyrcanus's tenure, the Seleucid king Antiochus III returned to Coelsyria. This time, he faced off against the very young, very weak, and relatively new Egyptian ruler, the ten-year-old Ptolemy V. Antiochus opened by bribing the Ptolemaic governor of Coelsyria to defect to his side. But the move was countered by a Ptolemaic general named Scopus, who reconquered much of the south. The following spring, both sides faced off at the 200 BC Battle of Panium, which was fought in the modern Golan Heights, near a major source of the Jordan. According to historian Paul John Stono, Pressed from two sides by war elephants, phalangites, and cataphracts, the relatively immobile Ptolemaic phalanx was almost annihilated where they stood. Scopus and the survivors abandoned the field to seek refuge in various cities, including Jerusalem, but were eventually forced to surrender. It was a complete victory for Antiochus III, and the Ptolemies had no choice but to permanently surrender control of Coelsyria. Which implies that Hyrcanus might be out of a job, only maybe not so fast.
It's reasonably possible that he offered his services to the ascendant Seleucid dynasty, which may have taken him up on the deal, at least during the reigns of Antiochus III and his son Seleucus IV, which would go a long way toward explaining Hyrcanus's supposed 22-year tenure. This may have been due to Hyrcanus being really good at his job or the challenge of finding a suitable alternative. Either way, the bad blood between Hyrcanus and his brothers had sucked in various Jewish factions, with the multitude divided, but the greater part joining with the elder brothers, as did Simon, the new high priest, by reason he was of kin to them. Actually, the new high priest, Onias II's son, Simon II, was kin to Hyrcanus too. But anyway, Hyrcanus remained mostly beyond their reach in the region of Philadelphia, which didn't mean he was totally safe. Josephus notes that Hyrcanus remained at perpetual war with the Arabians and slew many of them and took many of them captives. In the early 2nd century BC, the territories east of the Jordan were, I'm going to say, relatively ungoverned. The Seleucids concentrated their urban development up north between Antioch and the Mediterranean, the territory conventionally known as the Seleucia. At the same time, there's little evidence that the Ptolemies had expended much effort in developing Coel Syria besides refurbishing and renaming a few major cities like Philadelphia and Ptolemaeus Acco. The stretch of territory from Damascus on south to the Sea of Galilee and onward down toward the Dead Sea basically remained a virtual black box for much of the Neo-Babylonian, Achaemenid Persian, and early Macedonian periods. We know that there were a number of villages populated by Jews and Aramaeans, both of whom had been present in the region since at least the early Iron Age. There was also a sizable population of Greek and Macedonian colonists, and several small developing urban centers, including Scythopolis, which we mentioned earlier, along with Gerasa, Gadara, Hippos, and Dion. Their names suggest Macedonian involvement, and some may have grown from military outposts or veterans' colonies established during the Alexandrian, Ptolemaic, or Seleucid eras. In Roman times, ten of these cities would be grouped together to form what was called the Decapolis. The last major component of the local population was a recent influx of Arabic peoples one of whose tribes, the Nabataeans, had occupied the old Edomite city of Petra. It's the Arabs that Josephus highlights as an ongoing source of regional conflict. But without any details, it's hard to know whether he's describing raids by nomads on settled populations, or revolts against excessive taxation, or disputes arising from cultural differences, or full-scale punitive campaigns. Possibly all of the above. It's at this point that we finally touch on something a bit more solid, and kind of the driver for the whole episode. Because Josephus notes that, due to these ongoing conflicts, 
the threats from his brothers or both, Hyrcanus erected a strong castle and built it entirely of white stone to the very roof and had animals of a prodigious magnitude engraven upon it. He also drew round it a great and deep canal of water. He made large rooms in it, some for feasting and some for sleeping and living in. He introduced also a vast quantity of waters which ran along it, and which were very delightful and ornamental in the court. Moreover, he built courts of greater magnitude than ordinary, which he adorned with vastly large gardens. And when he had brought the place to the state, he named it Tyre. Tyre, or Tyros, is currently known as Qasr al-Abd, and is located just a few miles outside the Jordanian capital of Amman. I was extremely lucky to visit the site back in 2016, and many elements of the restored site are either just as Josephus described them or otherwise pretty easy to picture. The heavily decorated two-story stone structure is actually one of the few remaining examples of Hellenistic-era architecture in Jordan. The defensive moat described by Josephus was actually a large reflecting pool, and archaeologists such as Ehud Netzer argue that the entire structure was less a fortress than a country pleasure palace possibly also intended as a mausoleum for Hyrcanus's clan, the Tobiads. The huge stone blocks used in its construction also made it vulnerable to earthquakes, which seriously damaged the structure in late antiquity. Its modern restoration includes the bold reliefs of several tigers or lions, the same animals of prodigious magnitude described by Josephus. The name of the place, Qasr al-Abd, means castle of the slave or castle of the servant in Arabic. The title may refer to Hyrcanus himself, assuming he was still serving as the local tax farmer for the new Seleucid regime. Josephus reports that Hyrcanus lived in his newly built castle, which was never fully completed, for seven years prior to the death of Seleucus IV so from 182 to 175 BC, which means that he was probably living there when Seleucus sent his royal chancellor, Heliodorus, to rob the Jerusalem temple. Though his reason for doing so was pretty straightforward, the Seleucids were still paying huge indemnities to Rome under the Treaty of Apamea, the incident itself is a little bit kookadoo, in a biblical sense. According to 2nd Maccabees, when Heliodorus tried to access the temple treasury, he was confronted with a great apparition of a horse with a terrible rider upon him, who smote Heliodorus with his forefeet. After which the apparitions of two young comely boys gave him many sore stripes at which point Heliodorus decided that, yeah, that's about enough of that, and returned to Antioch empty-handed. In 175 BC, as mentioned earlier, Seleucus IV died at the age of 42, supposedly assassinated by Heliodorus. 
In the ensuing power struggle, Seleucus's brother came out on top and was elevated to the kingship as Antiochus IV. Early in his reign, there was a major kerfluffle in Jerusalem with a significant bearing on our story. The latest high priest was Onias III, the son of Simon II. When Onias III died with only an underage son, his brother assumed the high priesthood under the name of Jason. Jason seemed to start out in Antiochus's good graces, getting permission to build a new Greek-style suburb and gymnasium on the outskirts of Jerusalem. But a few years later, for reasons that are a bit unclear, but may have involved bribery, Antiochus IV ejected Jason from the rule and installed his younger brother as the high priest Menelaus. Despite his widespread popularity, Jason was driven from Jerusalem by the faction led by Hyrcanus's surviving brothers. And it's likely that when he fled the city, he made a beeline for the one wealthy and powerful man who hated the Tobiad brothers as much as he did, their exiled brother, Hyrcanus. After some period spent recharging in the luxurious pleasure palace of Qasr al-Abd, Jason rallied his faction, returned to Jerusalem, and ejected Menelaus from the high priesthood which may have made the general population of Jerusalem happy, but in case anyone's forgetting, Jason had been deposed and Menelaus installed by the new king Antiochus IV. And Antiochus IV, who was both very much still alive and in a particularly foul mood, since he'd just been humiliated by Roman envoys down in Egypt. The whole don't leave this circle until you give me an answer thing. So he was likely not well inclined to hear the news that some rebel Judeans were openly challenging his authority. The king's response was fairly brutal. According to 2 Maccabees, Antiochus set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those they met and slay those who took refuge in their houses. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. Menelaus was restored to the priesthood, and the temple treasury was looted for good measure. At Qasr al-Abd, Hyrcanus likely realized that his tax-farming days were over. Transitioning from the Ptolemies to the Seleucids had been a pretty neat trick, but there was no getting around his giving refuge to a rebel high priest in strong imperial disfavor. It's not clear whether Antiochus sent troops to arrest him. Josephus simply reports that Hyrcanus when he saw that Antiochus had a great army and feared lest he should be caught by him and brought to punishment for what he had done to the Arabians, he ended his life and slew himself by his own hand. As for Qasr al-Abd, his pleasure palace and would-be mausoleum, Josephus merely records that Antiochus seized upon all his substance. At roughly the same time, 
in the Gufna Hills north of Jerusalem, another aged Jew of noble blood expired among a circle of sons who'd become a band of outlaws. The man came from a line of Jewish high priests and had once served in the Jerusalem temple. But his blatant killing of a Seleucid official had put an end to all that. And it was over his now lifeless body that the five sons of Mattathias, great-grandson of Hasmonius, pledged their lives to the Jewish covenant and the destruction of Seleucid Syria.